Let us take as our goal, where peace is unknown, make it welcome. Where peace is fragile, make it strong. Where peace is temporary, make it permanent. After a period of confrontation, we are entering an era of negotiation. Let all nations know that during this administration, our lines of communication will be open. And with those who are willing to join, let us cooperate to reduce the burden of arms, to strengthen the structure of peace, to lift up the poor and the hungry. But to all those who would be tempted by weakness, let us leave no doubt that we will be as strong as we need to be for as long as we need to be. Thank you for listening to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroidis. This week's subject is very relevant to today's politics as the U.S. and Russia are constantly at odds on the direction of world affairs. It's about great power detente, that is the policy of relaxation of tensions in the 1970s between the Soviet Union and the United States. Here with us to discuss this is UC Hanimaki, Professor of History at the Graduate Institute of International and Development Studies in Geneva, Switzerland. He's one of the founding editors of the journal Cold War History, and in 2006 he was named Finland Distinguished Professor by the Academy of Finland. He's also the author of several books and publications, including The Rise and Fall of Detente, American Foreign Policy, and The Transformation of the Cold War. Professor Hanimaki, welcome. Thank you very much, John. Nice to be with you. The Rise and Fall of Detente is a very interesting book. Uh, how did you get immersed in this subject, and why did you decide to write it? Well, I, I, th I mean, two, two reasons probably. One, uh, one was that I've been immersed in, in the Cold War uh, as a historian for, for quite some time, and I'd written a book about, about Henry Kissinger um, prior to this one. Um, and what sort of struck me while, while doing that research um, was not only the, the sort of controversial nature of, of Kissinger and his, uh, his record, but also the, the fact that Detente remains the, the period of the 1960s and 70s, more broadly speaking, remains a sort of difficult period to understand um, on how it fits into the broader history of the, of the second half of the 20th century and what its significance, particularly in the Cold War context and possible impact on the ending of the Cold War that, uh, that came after. So really what I was trying to what I was curious about is trying to figure out what, what if any, role um, the policies of the 1970s enacted, particularly American policies of the 1970s enacted by the Nixon, Ford, uh, and Carter presidencies, what the broader impact, uh, long-term impact, perhaps was um, on uh, on international relations as a whole, whether they at this period was a transformative period. Um, which it sort of brought in some profound changes into the way in which uh, international relations evolved, um, or whether it was a sort of a period in which um, U.S. policymakers sort of um, withdrew to an extent to, uh, from, uh, from uh, global engagements because of um, the Vietnam War and uh, the legacy of Vietnam and and its impact on, on how the U.S. could uh, exercise its, uh, its influence around the world. And just for our audience, when we speak of detente, mm -hmm. uh, we're speaking about a French word. Mm -hmm. uh, what, is it, what does it literally yeah. mean? 
I think the easiest way to understand is, is relaxation of tensions uh, between two two uh, um, oppositional power, uh, powers or entities. So in this case, it, it generally refers to U.S.-Soviet relations uh, in, this, in this context. Okay. We're in the 1960s, and you know the, Ber mm -hmm. the Berlin Wall is erected, dividing Germany into East and West. And mm -hmm. there's four major sectors, American, British, French, and Soviet. It seems like the Cold War is at its height. Uh, you also have the Cuban Missile Crisis, and you have U.S. missiles mm -hmm. in, in Turkey and in Italy. Uh, when and why did the East and West, the, US, the United States and Europe and the Soviet Union, start talking about detente? Probably, I mean, to, to a large extent, this is, you could say that the early 1960s is, um, in terms of the bilateral U.S.-Soviet relationship, and even more broadly the East-West relationship uh, uh, at, at large, that's the trigger. But, you know, things like, I think the Berlin Wall was symbolic of the fact that Europe was divided, um, that the reaction to the Berlin Wall, which was in general an acceptance that you could, you know, the East Germans and with Soviet blessing could indeed erect a wall dividing this city and ending the free flow of people, uh, movement of people from East to West that was still taking place prior to August 1961 uh, from East Berlin to West Berlin and people were moving uh, relatively freely um, from from east to west up until that point, um, so the acceptance of, of of this as a sort of solution to um, what was essentially a brain drain from uh, from eastern Germany and which was threatening the collapse of the East German re regime at the time. Um, so it was a solution on the from the East German Soviet side to a problem. Um, it was vehemently criticized um, by the West, by the United States and its allies, but at the same time, no, nothing very concrete was done about, um, certainly no um, aggressive military action was considered as a response to that, that move. And that sort of symbolized the fact that the, the East, the, that the West had accepted um, that they could do very little to change Regimes. They couldn't enact regime change, in effect, by force um, in uh, in Eastern Europe or, or within within the Soviet bloc. And so there's a certain stability that set in uh, at that moment uh, in time in in Europe, um, and that allowed for the two sides then to exchange in gradual, um, gradually develop interactions with each other, not only Soviets and Americans, but perhaps more, more significantly uh, Europeans um, within e between East and West. So that was one thing. The Cuban Missile Crisis that you mentioned um, was a sort of symbolic event, a dangerous uh, period, of course, that, and that is still uh, cited as the one, one point in time when it was possible for an actual nuclear exchange between the United States and, <coughs> and the excuse me, Soviet Union to take place. It did not. Instead, we had this um, uh, a negotiated settlement. Um, and what that meant is that, A, you could obviously discuss things between the Americans and the Soviets with each other. So there was a symbolic reminder of that. But secondly, the fact that having come so close to essentially a potential nuclear holocaust. Um, that was a, 
also a reminder of the fact that we, there was a need to, for those countries that possessed nuclear weapons, and particularly the United States and the Soviet Union, to discuss ways in which um, a nuclear war could not um, get underway by accident, and that you needed to erect certain measures by which you could, um, before resorting to the ultimate weapon, you could actually negotiate. And that lent itself to a a gradual evolution of contacts, of negotiations, of of treaties, of which, uh, um, you know, we see in the 1960s already the Test Ban Treaty, for example, uh, in, in 1963, and then later on in the 60s, um, other other means of trying to reduce the danger of, of nuclear war. You write that 1968 was a particularly mm-hmm. um, uh, important year, um, and you call it the birth, that year the birth of detente. Um, mm-hmm. During this period, you also have the two superpowers vying um, for you know, power throughout the world. The U.S. is still heavily involved in Vietnam, and the Soviet mm-hmm. Union wants to keep its command over the Warsaw Pact states. We see, we see this with the suppre- suppression of the of the uprising, uh, the uh, the reform reformist uprising in Czechoslovakia. Out of this chaos, how did how did détente become top of mind? Well, the um, the chaos. I think what what it lends itself. I mean, the, I mean, if you take the two things uh, separately, first of all, the Vietnam War, which in in 1968, of course, as is well known, the United States is stuck in Vietnam with about half a million uh, American troops stationed there. There is the in, in early 1968, we have the um, the Tet Offensive, which is successful. Uh, Viet Cong's uh, operation against American South Vietnamese targets um, that brings the the likelihood that the war will never end or certainly will will could go on for a very, very long time home to Americans on without following the, the drama that unfolds on their TVs um, very rapidly. And that puts on a lot of political pressure on the Johnson administration at the time, but then also whoever is going to take over after after uh, the November 1968 elections in the United States to essentially to end the war, to bring Americans home and, and to do that. Now, how to do that in a way that at the same time would not dramatically jeopardize what are still considered to be significant American interests in in Vietnam and the world at large, you know, American credibility as a as a great power and and, and so on. That becomes the sort of one of the building blocks in, in diplomatic terms on how the Nixon administration then from 1969 onwards will try to end the war without conceding defeat. And you can only do that. It seems the argument is from people like Kissinger and others you can only do that by engaging the Soviets who are supporting the enemy um, and negotiating with them as well as with the, the later on bringing the Chinese perhaps into the picture in order to get the North Vietnamese to come to some kind of an agreement that will will not be a military defeat for the United States. So that, that again, that sort of pushes the uh, the need to negotiate, um, makes it imperative for American policymakers to engage the enemy, um, as it were, at the time, 
um, in substantial talks about how to solve what has become now a sort of nightmarish situation in Vietnam. So that, that creates one imperative. Now the, the other thing that you mentioned, the Czechoslovakia in 1968, um, and of course, just briefly go back to 1968, in the United States, this, this, there's this outpouring in 1968 of anti-war sentiment. And of course, the, for example, the Democratic National Convention, we're going to have another one in a couple of weeks' time, but in the 1968 one is disrupted by anti-war protests and, and, and essentially hands the, in some ways hands the, hands the election in 68 to, to Richard Nixon and the Republicans who are seen at the time as a sort of stable force. But that, on the other side of the, of the coin, what you see in the, in the Soviet bloc uh, in Eastern Europe is, uh, and you mentioned Czechoslovakia, which is a prime example of a sort of a revolt of sorts um, from the grassroots of trying to reform uh, the totalitarian systems that had been erected in the aftermath of World War II. Um, and there's the idea about socialism with a human face that you would in, in Czechoslovakia, and it seems to be rather popular, but at the same time, from the Soviet perspective, represents a threat to stability of their dominance and domination in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe. And so they crack down. Um, but what that Czech uprising and the Prague, so-called Prague Spring and uh, is a reminder of for the Soviets that they, in order to keep holding on to their um, block and keep it under control, they need at the minimum uh, some guarantees from from the West that there will not be an intervention, there will not be an effort, um, an outright effort on the part of the United States and its allies to to encourage further reform movements, further challenges to to Soviet dominance uh, in in Eastern Europe. So that again, that sort of pushes the Soviets to to accept talks bilateral discussions in particular with the United States as a way of, of gaining global acceptance um, to their, um, I'll call it the Soviet empire uh, in, in Eastern Europe. So this, again, it's, it's, I think what, what underlines all this is, um, is the sort of, um, from the Soviets, certainly, it, it is to wish to maintain stability and wish to maintain order, wish to, um, it's sort of conservative goal. And I think that's one of the themes in, in the book is that much of the time is, is certainly not a revolutionary effort to try and change the world, but rather the exact opposite. It's, it's the sort of an effort to try and, certainly in Europe, to try and make sure that the Essentially, the wall that was put symbolically, the symbolic wall in, in Berlin that was erected in 1961, that there will be no challenges to the division as such, um, um, that it will, that the stability, the Cold War stability uh, would be accepted uh, on, on a broad level. And that's the idea of the town, certainly from the, from the Soviet perspective. Um, so, yeah. Enter uh, President Nixon in 1969 mm -hmm. with his mm -hmm. national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Uh, <clears throat> how did the two seek to reformulate uh, U.S. Foreign, foreign policy, specifically uh, with subject mm -hmm. A, the Soviet Union? Mm -hmm. um, right. That was uh, 
Nixon's uh, Nixon's term for the Soviet Union, some of the speeches he called it subjugate the Soviet Union. I think that's that's the, one of the key points is to to understand about the Nixon era at, at large. And there's been a lot of recent books that, um, that seemed to some extent sidestep this. Um, the, the very fact that still in 1968-69, what American policymakers thought about first and foremost was the Soviet Union, not obviously the Vietnam War, but even the Vietnam War as it related to the Soviet Union and what was considered the Soviet challenge. So what the Nixon administration coming in, they faced a situation that was in many ways um, not entirely unlike, say, what uh, what Barack Obama would have faced in 2008-2009, in the sense that you had a war, uh, in this case in Vietnam in 1969, in which you had large numbers of American troops uh, stationed abroad, and there was a desire at home to bring them back, uh, to end the war, to um, not to lose the war, but to still end it in, a, in what Nixon would call the honorable way. So that's one imperative that they they bring in. Um, And they see the Soviet Union as a key to a negotiated settlement because the the Soviet Union is, by this point in 1969, alongside China, but but now has become, by by the late 60s, North Vietnam's major external supporter. So to get the Soviet Union on board in the, call it the peace process, for, for lack of a better term, um, to get a negotiated settlement with the North Vietnamese. That is, is one goal. So they see the Soviet Union in part as a tool um, to be used as a, a potential ally or, or at least uh, a vehicle for, for coming up with a, an acceptable solution to the Vietnam War. So that's, that's one thing. Now, in order to do that, they see this, uh, the Soviet, obviously, see that you can't, there's no way one should just uh, ask the Soviets to help in Vietnam. That's not going to get you very far or that will you will end up losing. So it's not a diplomacy to simply ask for something. So what does the United States have to offer? Well, obviously the United States has what it has to offer is, uh, for example, um, negotiations about nuclear weapons, uh, to, which in the 1960s, the Soviet Union had engaged in a, in a massive program of developing large nuclear arsenals um, that by the late 60s are essentially numerically a, a match to that of the United States, um, and so, but also very, very costly uh, for the Soviet Union. So to try to, uh, one of the ideas behind the time is that you can bring the idea of, of, of coming up with an, an agreement about the levels, at least, at the minimum, uh, at the top levels, gaps um, in which, um, you know, each side, each of the two major nuclear powers that they should negotiate bilaterally. And the idea is that you can link these things together, in, um, if not... Um, not sort of publicly, but certainly in behind closed doors, you can there can be a give and take. You can link nuclear weapons talks with uh, the idea of, of pushing ahead in in some peace process manner in uh, in Vietnam. The trouble becomes that the Soviets bring in other issues like the Middle East, um, 
which uh, in which is another regional conflict in which the United States and the Soviet Union at the time are, of course, uh, on opposite sides, essentially. Um, and and so it it becomes, I think, the what happens unintentionally to some extent. That while while Nixon and Kissinger think that you know they can sort of use the Soviets to, um, they have things to offer to the Soviets. They can use this to to promote their own agenda, which is to end the Vietnam War and, and so on. At the same time, the Soviets are not simple passive recipients of uh, of American uh, um, American policy or American um, that they have their own agenda that they are pushing. A sort of interaction becomes essentially the heart of uh, of the detente process, as understood as a diplomatic process. In February 1972. Mm -hmm. um, President Nixon triangulates a bit by making yeah. his historic trip to China, which is considered mm -hmm. uh, the centerpiece of his term, first term in office and, and often considered his greatest mm -hmm. legacy as well. How did this move yeah. affect dealings with, with the Russians? And, and what was the president's overall mm -hmm. strategy here? I think China sort of emerged, for Nixon, China had been from the mid-60s the idea that the United States could not forever um, ignore the existence of the People's Republic China, as it had done since, since 1949, I think. It certainly come to realize that that was something that will have to change um, sooner rather than later. Um, and given that the Soviets and the Chinese had become increasingly um, antagonistic vis-a-vis -vis each other in the late 1960s, there had been border conflicts um, some very serious ones, actually, in the first few months of the Nixon presidency on the Sino-Soviet border. So this gives impetus to the idea that the United States could, I mean, in very simple terms, play one against the other uh, and essentially play China against the Soviet Union. Um, uh, but how do you do that? And the only way you could could do that is if you have some kind of a relationship to begin with, with uh uh, with the People's Republic of China. So what you have in the period from about March, April 1969 till the summer of 1971, when Henry Kissinger then makes what becomes the famous secret trip to, to China, uh, and then that agrees upon, among other things, agrees upon the fact that Nixon will will also go and go and visit China. So so that process takes place in secret, and apparently is perhaps somewhat surprising that the Soviets do not anticipate um, what takes place um, in, in then over the culmination of, the, of this secret diplomacy with China, which is the so-called opening opening to China. Um, the, um, the actual impact of that opening is somewhat more difficult to to discern. There are claims, and Henry Kissinger, for example, makes the claim that that essentially it unlocked the key to all kinds of agreements that that the Soviets had yet to uh, yet to accept, such as an agreement about the status of uh, of Berlin, which was one of those things that the Americans and the Soviets, along with the the, the French and the British, had been discussing in the early 1970s. In in reality, the um, the impact um, was probably more felt 
in in North Vietnam than it was in uh, in the Soviet Union, in a sense that the People's Republic of China had been the other major external supporter of the North Vietnamese up until um, up until 1971, and the North Vietnamese did not react very positively to the fact that uh, their main enemy was suddenly. Um, Opening a, a diplomatic relationship uh, with one of their major major supporters, so it may have had some impact on uh, on uh, on on the on the Chinese side. But undoubtedly, it um, um, it probably um, on the Soviet side probably made it somewhat easier um, for the Nixon administration to conclude the SALT-1 agreement that would then be signed uh, in, in, in Moscow in, in May of 1972, um, in that the Soviets probably um, wanted to not 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 you know did not wish to jeopardize what uh, the long negotiations that had led to one of the breakthrough agreements uh, of of the early early detente period so so they sort of accepted reluctantly the fact that the united states and the soviet union were to have uh, i'm sorry the united states and, and the people's republic of china uh, were engaging in in bilateral diplomacy but they, at the same time the soviets did the best not to not to publicly ever acknowledge that this was having any kind of impact uh, on how they reacted or how they um, uh, conducted their foreign policy. Uh, now um, you talk about the May trip yeah. that happened three months later. Uh, Nixon makes a trip to mm -hmm. Russia and he becomes mm -hmm. the first president mm -hmm. ever to do so. Um, the president and mm -hmm. Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev uh, negotiates SALT-1 uh, and the anti-ballistic mm -hmm. missile treaties. Can you describe what each mm -hmm. of them accomplished? Um, yeah, I mean the the salt one. Uh, they essentially dealt with two like you said, two treaties, salt one and the and the ABM uh, ABM treaty. What uh, what the first agreement uh, basically dealt with was so-called offensive nuclear weapons. So so nuclear weapon systems that are. Most of the nuclear weapons, which are either missile systems uh, of, of various sorts, or they are nuclear bombs that can be dropped off airplanes, fired off uh, of submarines, and so on and so forth. So, the Salt One Agreement basically dealt with the levels and uh, set a level for what each side, the numbers that each side could have of these. Uh, offensive nuclear weapons, weapons meant to be shot at um, or used against uh, an enemy target. Um, the ABM treaty dealt with uh, a new kind of weapon system that was essentially, as it, the, the name says, the anti-ballistic missile systems. Um, so it was this, uh, a missile defense system by, that was to be used to shoot down any incoming uh, incoming nuclear missiles that had, that the enemy had fired upon, say, the United States or against the Soviet Union. Um, the the um, the ABM um, treaty remained in force for quite some time. In in fact, into the uh, 
George W. Bush administration um, in the so it was I think um, in two at the end of 2001 when the Bush administration announced that they were drawing from this. It was somewhat controversial in that um, um, the critics of this uh, basically said that. Uh, that to try to develop, and, and it was sort of an, an, uh, a predecessor of what Reagan then, in the, in the Reagan administration, we talk about Star Wars and, and missile defense systems and so on. So this was an early version of that. Uh, it was never actually, the United, each side agreed in 1972 that they could have two, two anti-ballistic missile systems, um, that one could be around the capital city, so Washington and Moscow, and another one somewhere else in the in the United States or the Soviet Union. Um, the Americans never built any of, of these operational systems, either around Washington or, or anywhere else under, under the treaty. Soviets apparently built one that was um, not around Moscow, but around a, a missile, uh, missile site somewhere else place that I'm sorry, I, my memory now escapes, escapes where, but that was not considered to be particularly effective in case there actually was a real nuclear attack. So the ABM treaty, as well as the, the, the treaty on, um, on, on the missiles, um, on, the, on the offensive, I'm sorry, not missiles, but offensive nuclear weapon systems, um, were signed in tandem. Uh, and the idea was that this would then lead to further talks uh, about um, new, about reduce actually reducing the number of missiles in the future that that both sides would have. So the salt one, I think, which was the more significant in many ways of of the two treaties. The basic idea here is the first. It was a first of its kind of of a treaty of its kind, and the idea was that you could actually would set a limit for both sides on the number of nuclear, um, um, essentially nuclear weapons that, that each side could have. And that could be the first step to essentially freeze um, the nuclear arms race uh, at a certain level. Um, and the general idea was that from there you can then engage in further talks to actually start bringing down the numbers of, of, of nuclear missiles. Stay tuned for part two of this podcast as we discuss President Nixon and the era of detente with Professor Yusi Hanamaki.